I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 10 of Failed Critic. If this was an anniversary, this would be the tin podcast. <laughs> not the tin, not the tin pot podcast, although sometimes when we're turning up at 10 o'clock in the morning hungover without any notes prepared, it might feel that way. <laughs> Alright, I don't need to drop me in this. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, this would be the tin podcast. We've made it to double figures. So we must, so we must, (laughs) so we must be doing something right. Or ignoring everything that's going wrong. Yeah, yeah, just block (laughs) blindly regardless of everything. That's the way I like to do things. So, James, do you want to give the listeners a a quick update on what's been happening with the podcast in the last week and the website and everything else? Yes, um, in the last week, uh, well, yeah, people are still listening to us, and that's why we're still here. So that's that's really good to hear. Um, and th- again, thank you to everyone who has sent in suggestions and who has kind of tweeted us or Facebooked us and everything like that. That's all really, really madly appreciated. Hopefully this week um, we will actually have some articles going up. on. So I've got a few articles that are almost ready to go up on site now. So this week we'll see some interesting articles going up on site as well. And again, anyone who wants to write anything at all for the website, get in touch with us. Um, you can get in touch with us at uh, failedcritic at gmail.com or you can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash failedcritic or just visit our site and leave a comment and contact us there through uh, failedcritics.com. Excellent. So we'll start off... As usual, with the good, the bad, and the ugly, we'll move on to Triple Bill, where this week it's all about our favourite films that have been adapted from novels, and we'll finish off with our two-part review, Unspoiled and Spoiled, of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. So let's just kick off straight away with the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we'll start with Owen. Okay, cool. Um, well, I'll kick off straight away with the bad film I saw uh, during the week, which was War Horse, the Steven Spielberg film uh, set in the Great War, with um, basically the story of a horse and his owner um, from Devonshire, and it's just so tediously predictable. Um, it got criticised when it came out as being schmaltzy and typical Spielberg um, but I'm afraid I have to agree with that I didn't really enjoy it um, it's everything that you expect it to be really It's it's got the sort of sad things to it that it tries to make you feel sorry for the horse and sorry for the owner and then you feel sorry about the people in the war it's just it's um, 
like I say, just really tedious. The, the there's not a single line of wasted dialogue, um, and by that I mean everything that is said <laughs> in the film is designed to keep the plot moving. There is nothing anybody says that's interesting or entertaining apart from oh, okay, so that means that this is going to happen. That means that's going to happen next. Okay, no, this is happening. It's just really tedious. It's tedious. There is no other word to describe it. Um, it's just it's essentially pointless the whole thing because you're shown a few scenes at the start of the film where he finds the horse and then he starts to break the horse in and you know it's part of this um uh what's it called this sort of market where they, they buy the horse and the owner who eventually gets him he's got this dispute with his landlord who also bids it for the horse and then they go into a river uh, dispute about the whole thing and you just know straight away exactly what the final scenes are going to be you know the precise details of the final scene um, it is that predictable which also doesn't help when people are just when the, ho- the whole of the dialogue is designed just to talk about the story because you know exactly what's going to happen in the story it's just really boring I did talk to a friend of mine about it afterwards and what, one of the things that he said he liked about it because he did enjoy it and you know that's fair enough if you like sort of it's a nice film it's a very simple story. If you just want to watch something that's got a nice, simple story to it, I can see well, what, what you might get out of it. It's adapted from a children's novel, actually, but it's not going to be one of my three <laughs> But, it, you know, so I can understand that. But one of the things that he said he liked about it was the way it was shot, and it was supposed to have been shot in a very traditional style. Whilst watching the film, one of the things I actually took it exception to was the way it was shot so I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure how we both came to different conclusions about that so the way that it looked to me was just really unoriginal just um unimaginative really boring to, to look at it just seemed really lazy and kind of devoid of any ideas or creativity so yeah i mean it just it's just really the plot is straightforward the way it's shot is really straightforward it's just a bit Long. Uh, for, as well as that, yeah, it's really long for a kids film, because you know, that's what it feels like. You don't see anybody dying. You don't. Although it's set in the war, you see people shooting guns, but nobody gets hit by guns. And it's as a kid for a kids film based on a kids novel. It's just way, way too long. It's about two hours long, and you know, for a kid that's too long. For adults, it's just way too dull. So yeah, that was my bad film. I don't know if anyone else has seen it on the. No, I've not. I've not seen it. Yeah, I, was, I kind of thought I'll get round to seeing it at some point, like off Love Film or something like that. Um, but mainly, I, I come from, I, I grew up in Devon, so I, I am interested mm-hmm. in seeing like a lot of the opening, uh, the opening section of the film because apparently he has captured Dartmoor. Uh, Dartmoor looks very beautiful, and I love Dartmoor, so I'm almost tempted to watch it just to see some nice scenery and then turn it off afterwards. I don't know, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean the, the the characters in it, they're, they're they're played as typical Devonshire lads, you know. Yeah. Uh, in that time, that period, and there's, I guess they're meant to be charming, but they're not really. <laughs> I love when I lived there. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I didn't really get on with this film very well. But um, no, anyway, so the other film that I watched, which I want to talk about, uh, that I thought was a good film that I watched this week, which I kind of went into with uh, about the same level of expectation as I did with War Horse, um, was Slumdog Millionaire. 
which is the story. Um, it's Danny Boyle's film set in India. Story of Jamal, who's um, uh, he wins some. You see him as he wins a million. Well, he becomes a millionaire. I, don't, I can't remember precisely how many rupees it is that he wins yeah. on to be a millionaire, but he wins enough to be classed as a millionaire. And then it's the story of his past and how he got to be in that position, whilst at the same time he's being investigated for perhaps cheating to to, to win the money or get to the final final question because he's just a slumdog. He's just from the, the ghetto. What would he know about any of these these answers and these questions? He's just a what do they call him chai something or the, the chai walla, yeah, chai walla, yeah. <laughs> so you know, but I, I wasn't really expecting much from it because I was told that for a feel good film, it's just needlessly violent and has just way too much torture in it. So I thought, okay, well, you know, fair enough. A feel good film to have a proper happy ending. It has to have some degree of tragedy in the lead up to it. But I was told that actually the payoff that you get at the end is nothing compared to how brutal it is earlier on. Which, you know, okay, well then what kind of film is it supposed to be? Is it just overdoing that one aspect to, to, to get a particular audience? I don't know. So I wasn't really looking forward to it, I guess. But I'd also put it off because I thought it was quite a long film. And if you don't enjoy the first hour of the film and then there's still another hour to go, you know, it can, can drag. Yeah. yeah. I was quite interested. You say about the torture and stuff. I I went to see it in the cinema um, okay. around the time that it was. Uh, yeah, everyone was talking about it basically, and what an amazing story. And I went to see it in my local art cinema, and there was a load of kind of uh, old women and stuff like a load of the kind of older generation who were expecting this lovely story, and yeah. sitting in amongst them when the torture scenes were happening was actually I perversely enjoyed that quite a lot actually um so the talk i was fine i was fine with the torture scenes now they, they are very difficult to watch in some cases and it's not just you know the uh the kind of present day torture scenes there's a lot of violence in the kind of childhood growing up and things like that yeah which can be quite shocking yeah that's it it's, it is very shocking um but you know it, it's actually on the whole i thought it was a very good film i thought the, the payoff that you get at the end it is worth you know, you can see it's not just needlessly violent. There's violence, but it's because it it builds to something quite big towards the end. And, um, you know, they're very well-written characters, very likable characters in some circumstances. You know, Jamal is very likable. He's quite a resourceful, smart, sort of kind kid. He's very endearing. Uh, and, yeah, he does have a lot of adversity in his life. And then, but because he's so likable, you do want him to do well. So you see him in this... Um, these situations where, uh, as a kid, and there's a scene basically where him and his brother are on a train, and the the use of the the music that goes with it, and the way it's shot, and it's sort of their little adventure on the train. It only lasts the scene about sort of five minutes, I think, but it's it's really good. It's it's one of the best parts of the film, and I, you know, that that was probably the turning point in the film where I thought, oh, I, re- I really like these kids. <laughs> I really like the story. I, you know, you kind of want them to do well. Then they get to the Taj Mahal, and you know, there's a story. There's a bit where he's sort of leading people around the Taj Mahal as a tourist, and <laughs> it's funny. They're, they're yeah. funny in the film, and it's it's very smart and very clever, and it's an interesting way of telling that story as well because it doesn't go in just a linear story. It doesn't have you know the bit with the game show, and then it moves on to the present day, and then it has a bit where it does a bit better. It's past to come to the end. It's all very neatly interwoven. Um, and, you know, you'd expect the, the bits with the game show 
to be distracting or maybe even detract from the drama itself in the in the rest of the film. But it, it doesn't really. It adds a different kind of tension because um, the, the guy who hosts it, uh, who wants to be a millionaire, he's a very good character as well. He's a very well-written character and it's a great performance from him as he sort of smarmy Indian Chris Tarrant almost. And, uh, <laughs> but it, it's great. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I was surprised how much I enjoyed the film. Um, and I would definitely recommend that and not War Horse if you want to see a good... Um, how an Oscar film should be, I guess. Yes. No, no, I, I, and I, I definitely agree with what you sound. So I'm, I'm a really big fan of Slumdog Millionaire, definitely. Great. Um, I do have another film which I want to very briefly talk about. I know I've been talking for ten minutes already, <laughs> but I just quickly mention it um, because it's another film. I wasn't sure what to expect from it, but Kickass, the um, film from about two years ago now, which was based on a comic by Mark Miller, who. It's very hit and miss with his comics, like I tend to find. And in the comic, the first two issues are quite good. It's supposed to be about this kid who decides, well, why aren't there superheroes in the world? Why does nobody dress up as a hero? And then the comic's premise was that it would be a sort of a real-life story. You know, what would happen if someone really decided to dress up as a superhero? Then the comic kind of lost its way after about two issues, I thought. It just... Ended up being a silly, over-the-top comic book story, and it lost this idea of being about a real, a real person as a as a superhero. But the film, I thought from the very beginning, you didn't get that impression from it. You got that it was a comic book world with people in it who wanted to be heroes, and it was brilliant. I thought it was really good. It really captured this this idea of it being this world where there are these big gangs who all hide out in terrors and they, you know, there are heroes and stuff and these people who go around and they do dress as these kids who start dressing as heroes and it was, it was really fun. It was fun and um, I guess the other thing I thought that it would it wouldn't have um, that wouldn't be quite good about it was from the trailers I remember seeing the trailer with Hit Girl who, I don't know if you've seen the film or the trailers or read the comics at all Hit Girl is this sort of 13 year old girl who, uh, can I say this word? Can, you, can I say the C word on the podcast are we going to get away with that um, let's not I, just... <laughs> <laughs> the C we know word. what you're referring to I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she says the C word in the trailer Yeah. so you kind of think oh well basically they've missed the point of her character and she's just going to be this this kid who just says naughty words and that's going to be the taboo for the film and that's going to get in these sort of teenage audience who are going to think it's really hilarious um, but actually the, the film's it, she's very good. She's probably the best thing about the film, as well as Nick Cage's Adam West impersonation, which is also yes. <laughs> no, I, I I really like it. That's and Hit Girl was is Chloe Grace Moretz, who is really really turning out to be a very good actress. Actually, uh, she was in Hugo um, as well. And, oh, she was in Dark Shadows, but you know everyone makes mistakes. We'll forgive her. <laughs> she is young, to be fair, and she was she was actually pretty good in that as well. She was just horribly let down by a lousy script. Um, but no, no, Kickass is very. Uh, it's. I think we have we talk about Christopher Nolan a lot, and, you know, in film circles in this country and things like that. But I really do think that uh, Matthew Vaughan is a really underrated director, and he's done some fantastic films. And he hasn't made too many bad. He has. I don't think he's made a bad film yet. Which is, yeah, in my opinion, anyway. I know X Men First Class kind of got a few mixed reviews, but I quite enjoyed X Men First Class. But um. 
Uh, he's definitely got a, a very visual style. And he stepped out because he produced the old... Uh, he produced Lockstock, didn't he, and Snatch. So he was Guy Ritchie's producer, essentially, and then thought, oh, actually, no, I think I could do this, and then did Layer Cake. And then, I really, really like Matthew Vaughan, and I think he's got a, a definite style which you can feel through Kick-Ass. And I'm, I'm slightly worried that he is, a, is apparently not directing the rumoured Kick-Ass sequel. So I don't, I don't know how that's going to go and how that's going to work. Yeah, I mean, the, I haven't read the, the sequel on the comic series because I didn't really enjoy the comics itself. So it, whatever happens with it will be new to me. Um, but you might have met Matthew Vaughan. I thought his directing was spot on. He, he actually captured what the comic book was supposed to be like. And um, it was very self-aware. It, it left out a lot of cliches that it could have you know, accidentally forced into the story I guess and it didn't come across his name like parody He's, yeah he was very he was a very good director in, um, in Kick-Ass I enjoyed his work yeah, was very good but that's it that's all my three films I've got to talk about this week well I've, I've watched three films as well this week compared to last week where I watched none so <laughs> fast improvement okay. um, I've got some DVDs on recommendation from, from Owen but I haven't watched it yet so I'll watch it next week but I did watch a recommendation from James. I watched The Muppets. Hey! <laughs> Obviously, the newest newest released Muppets movie. I thought it was excellent. Yeah. All round. <laughs> couldn't couldn't fault it really. It's oh, that that pleases me greatly. That does please me greatly. It's it's a solid plot, so that I mean that obviously helps. Jason Segel is is brilliant in it. Sort of just his usual funny kind of charming self from sort of, well, you know, How I Met Your Mother or most other films I've seen. Pretty much everything he's in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> plays kind of the same character that he plays in, in every everything I've seen him in, but it, it works. Makes me slightly less apprehensive about James making us go and see the five-year engagement. <laughs> uh, all, the, all the Muppets are excellent, including Jason Seagal's brother, who's somehow a Muppet, which doesn't biologically make sense, but there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, James is talking about it quite a few times, but it obviously tells a story of the Muppets whose studio is going to be torn down in the search for oil by some rich Texan businessman who's a bit evil. Um, Tex so that, Richmond. Exactly. Yeah. Tex Richmond, yes. <laughs> so the Muppets have to raise $10 million to save the studio and put on a big show, but they've not been together for a long time and there's all some animosity between the Muppets at the start of it. But yeah, it's excellent. It's funny all the way through. It's got it's got one of my favourite scenes in any film where there's a montage of bringing everyone back together. <laughs> that is a and it's a great montage and yeah. yeah, it really pokes fun at that whole thing. In fact, that is about that 15 minutes of the film where they start off to put the Muppets back together yeah. 15 20 minutes it is I think that's absolute comic genius and I haven't laughed as much in the cinema for years. Just watching that section especially. Yeah, especially when they're sort of in the car and Rolf says, why, why don't we show my story? I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. They went back to it and he sort of just sat on a hammer because we're getting the Muppets back together. Do you want to join it? Yeah, yeah fine. <laughs> Class. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they gave, they gave all the Muppets sort of screen time without sort of overkilling any of them or underusing any of them and... It, you know, it resolves itself well in the end, and hopefully they'll keep making some more because it was it was brilliant. None of the humour was too crass either. 
No, no. And it was very, um, I think you could tell that the spirit of the Flight of the Concords kind of ran through it as well. Obviously, Brett McKenzie wrote the songs. It was directed by James Bowen um, and co-written, who was the director and one of the co-writers of Flight of the Concords. And you're right, it is, it is funny without needing to resort to any kind of crassness or anything like that. And the other good point... Uh, I really watching it again. This I watched it with my little one this week. Um, the great thing about it, as compared to other great Muppet films, um, but in most of the Muppet films, the Muppets have to take on another character. So Muppet Christmas Carol, uh, you know Muppet Treasure Island, that kind of thing. They have to sacrifice their own character to become a an adaptation. Whereas in this film, they just got to be themselves, and I really like that as well. One one criticism, not enough of Gonzo for my liking. Yeah, Gonzo. Yeah, there should have been more Gonzo. Mm. Oh, I'm with you on that one, actually. Uh, second second film I watched was um, it's gone blank now. Ridiculous. Memorable then. No, it was Kill Keith. Oh, oh no! <laughs> I want to hear when you talk. Yeah, if sometimes a film comes along with a title that you just can't help but watch, I'm talking about. Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which we watched this this week. And I'm talking about things like Snakes on a Plane. When you hear there's a film starring Keith Chegwin called Kill Keith, you, you kind of have to watch it. And it basically tells a story of, well, there is a daytime TV program like GMTV or anything like that, your standard, you know, program. And um, they're basically looking for a new male host. Keith Chegwin's on a short list of about five of all the usual suspects like Tony Blackburn and Joe Pasquale and but they all get getting killed off one by one and it turns out that Keith Chegwin is killing them all off so he can get the job himself. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, it sounds stupid and it sounds crap and essentially it is. <laughs> but, it, 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 but it is genuinely one of them films that's sort of so bad that it ends up being kind of good and quite funny in some places. I, I, I might end up watching this at some point. That's that's. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement, but you know what? You haven't completely put me off watching it. I mean, it doesn't take itself too seriously, which I don't think you can when it's that subject matter. On yeah. <laughs> there, there are some quite funny bits in it, but by and large, yeah, it's, it's not the greatest film I've ever watched. And finally, uh, if, well, the other film I've watched this week was was Batman Returns. Oh, yeah. gearing up. Gearing up, yes, because I've watched it, obviously, a couple of times, and I've never quite, I've liked it, enjoyed it, but I've never quite seen the massive hype that everyone else seems to find around it. So I thought I'd, I'd order the, you know, the two that are out now, and what, you know, watch them, so I've watched Batman Returns, and I felt the same. It was good, it was watchable, but it's not as great as what everyone seems to be making out. I've, I enjoyed The Avengers a lot more. And I, I think okay, it's, be- I, th- I think it's because there just seems to be, I think in a superhero film you need a bit of humour and Batman just seems to be lacking in it completely and fun. I think a superhero film needs to have humour and a bit of fun and Batman just seems to lack it which doesn't which doesn't make it as good for me but it was still it's still a good film. Yeah. But I mean I think it's it's aged better than Burton's other Batman film. Uh, Batman. The first one. I think it's yeah. <laughs> it's Batman, aged a yeah. lot better than Batman. Batman's basically the Jack Nicholson with Batman in it film, isn't it? Whereas yeah. Batman Returns, is, it's got a better story to it, I think, and it's just, um, but I thought it was right. I thought it was probably, you know, after Begins and um, 
The Dark Knight. I thought Batman Returns was probably the best Batman film. Really? Sorry, I've fucked this up. I make Batman Begins. <laughs> right, okay. I've had, a, I've had, a, I've had an absolute shocker this morning. <laughs> How drunk did you get watching the football yesterday, exactly? <laughs> Not drunk enough, obviously. <laughs> no, I, okay. I, I meant Batman Begins. Sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the Nolan one, the first yeah. Nolan one. Yeah. yeah, I thought that's what you were talking about anyway, to be honest. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm probably still drunk. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not just I, me, then. Did you say Batman Returns or Batman Begins? Am I, am I the one who's drunk still? <laughs> oh, look at us. We've just fallen apart yeah. on our 10th podcast, haven't we? Goodness me. I, he may well have said Batman Returns, but I, I was assuming Batman Begins. I anyway, did, I did so. say Returns, but I meant Begins. I don't know what... Okay. <laughs> I, ju- I just think I got, con- well, I just think I wasn't thinking properly and I thought, well, what's the title? Well, he returns, so it must be that one. Yeah, no, true. It would have made um, more sense because he doesn't begin in this one, he returns, but he does begin as well. Anyway, it was Batman Begins. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's, it's a good film and, you know, the whole series is quite good. The new one looks quite good as well, but it's just something that doesn't make me enjoy it as much as what I could and I think it's a lack of, a lack of humour and fun. From a, from I think there's a very, very English dry humour to it. There, there is a bit, but just sort of that, yeah, that isn't necessarily immediately obvious. There's but it all just it all just quips but it all just seems to be that. down to Michael Caine making some cocky remark. Yeah. Oh yeah, mm. but I could watch him do that all day. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's move on to what James has been watching this week and see yeah. if we can get all the titles right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, so good bad. I haven't seen anything particularly ugly this week. I saw something that I, I used to think was good. Um, now I'm not sure if it's actually, but I, I rewatched The Crow uh, for the first time in basically since I was a, a Mardi teenager myself. Um, so it's about. I don't know, 15 years since I've seen it. A Crow, uh, directed by Alex Proyas from 1994, who went on to direct the absolutely terrible Knowing. Um, but yeah, uh, it starred Brandon Lee, and it's famously the film that Brandon Lee died on sh- uh, on set uh, filming it, and they had to finish it off. Basically, um, using a lot, uh, having to use a lot more imagination than. Uh, when Heath Ledger died, for example, uh, you know, they, they were able to use technology a lot more to finish off those films. But here, he died still quite near the end. But it, it's a very interesting story, but I don't want to get into all that. Mainly, I found the quote, it was still quite interesting. It reminded me, actually, of a really emo Batman. Um, you know, he's the lead singer of a rock band. And there's a scene halfway through which is laughably terrible, where he just wailing on a guitar on top of a main skyscraper it's just the film has dated really really badly uh and there's a few bits that i read there's a child narrator um you know and i'm not automatically against narration when i hear it but in i think some i read somewhere this week that said that um narration should only be used if it's not integral to the plot if you're having to use narration uh, to drive the plot forward, then that's lazy writing. And that kind of happens a little bit here. Not completely. Um, but yeah, it, Michael Wincott played the same creepy, scary bad guy that he does in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It, it's not a terrible film. It's just nowhere near as good as I remember. So I'm going to stop going back and watching some of these th- films that I thought were great when I was younger. Um, and talking about when I was younger, 
Uh, I'm going to go back to the 70s now for you, Steve. Uh, believe it or not, I didn't grow up in the 70s. I know it might seem like it sometimes, but this weekend I realised I wish I had grown up properly in the 70s. I was only born at the end of the 70s because, firstly, uh, there was an entire night of David Bowie on BBC4 last night that I've, or, or the night before, that I've taped. I can't wait to go back and watch that. I wish I'd been a teenager when David Bowie was playing at Hammersmith uh, Apollo and things at like Hammersmith Odeon. Um, but I went to see Jaws this week, the the first kind of summer blockbuster, the rebirth of cinema, um, the rebirth of that kind of popcorn-eating movie culture. 1975, talking about Spielberg earlier, you know, this is really, we're topping and tailing Spielberg's career in this little section. Jaws is amazing. Uh, as most people know, I don't need to go on about that. The new print that's in the cinema looks fantastic. And for the first 10, 15 minutes, I just kept telling myself, oh, it really looks like it was filmed this year. Uh, they've cleaned up the the print so amazingly. Everything looks so clean. And it just makes the film look fantastic. And I only, I'd only ever seen Jaws on TV, probably with adverts in between and stuff like that. And being able to go and experience it in a cinema with a beautiful uh, new print just made me realise that it is a perfect film, in my opinion. Um Apparently, there were, it put, over 67 million Americans saw it in the summer of 1975. And that's just, that's unbelievable to me. Um, and I, 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 I just don't think you get necessarily that, that whole set, you know, everyone in society going to see a film. And also, um, it, it holds up. It was made in 1975. Even the shark doesn't look as bad as I, as I thought it would be, or as I even remember and I've heard talked about. Um, no, I, just go and see Jaws if you get a chance, if it's still in any cinemas anywhere near you. But the Blu-ray's out towards the end of August, I think, and I think the Blu-ray is going to look as fantastic as that print. That would be brilliant. And the other film I just want to quickly mention is I finally got around to watching Fire in Babylon, which is a 2010 documentary by Stephen Riley about the uh, 1970s uh, and 1980s West Indian test cricket side. And, uh, again... They were probably the most intimidating sports team of all time. Um, in the 60s, uh, I, I don't know if either of you two even kind of will. I, I doubt you like cricket, do you? I just want to check this before I bang on for um, an hour. No, no, no. no. But, but I think this documentary would actually be really interesting to, even to people who don't like It's a brilliant sports documentary. Um, and also, it's a documentary about race relations, about the history of the uh, the Caribbean islands and how they all pulled together to form this one team, the West Indies. Um, also makes a complete mockery of the view that cricket is a soft sport because, you know, people might say, oh, you know, if they go off when it's raining, you know, what sports stop for lunch and tea and stuff like that. But when you look at some of the footage in this documentary of big people like um, uh, uh, some of their nicknames, Whispering Death, and the hitman, uh, Michael Holden, his, his nickname was Whispering Death, which is one of my favourite sports nicknames of all time. But you see him come in and bowl a ball at a batsman's head at 90 miles an hour, and the batsman isn't even wearing a helmet back then. It it does make me think, oh, actually, no, these guys were pretty pretty damn brave. Um, it, or it features loads of Viv Richards, who is the coolest man in sport ever, in my opinion. Loads of really good music as well, uh, both from the time, because Bob Marley was good friends with uh, a lot of the team, and also some modern reggae and stuff like that. It, it's a, it's a, only an hour and 20 minutes, but it does give you a real potted history of one of the most uh, interesting aspect uh, times of cricket. So 
if you are interested, at least in sport, I'm not saying, I think if you like sport, you'll like this, even if you're not sure if you like cricket. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I haven't really seen many sports documentaries, but actually, you know, it's not necessarily the, the actual sport that's being played, is it, when you talk about sports documentaries? It's how well the documentary is made and how insightful it, it can be. Exactly. I don't, I don't like Formula One. Um, but I found Senna fascinating. Uh, mm. And I think it is about the character uh, or about the story or about, you know, the time. And the sport is just another one of a form of the medium uh, rather yeah. than being a focus on it. And I think those stories are the, are the really interesting ones. Like, um, I've still not got around to watching the one that Steve recommended recently about the water polo, the blood in the water water oh, polo. Yeah. But, I don't, I don't care one jot about water polo, but I'm really excited to watch that film because of the story behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one, one Night in Turin was on TV yesterday. Which I've yes, yeah, and I've talked about that on here before. Yeah. I absolutely love One Night in Turin, yeah. Uh, should we move on to Triple Bill? Yeah, go on then. <laughs> Before we start Triple Bill, James has got a rebuttal to make. Yes, um, I, I'm going to address someone directly. I'm going to address someone on Twitter who used to go by the name of at Pangloss and is currently going by the moniker of at Pang is wrong because he lost a bet with me about whether or not England would get through uh, their qualifying group in the Euros. Anyway, um, yeah, last week he complained that we didn't choose Citizen Kane. Uh, none of us chose Citizen Kane as one of the films that didn't win Best uh, Picture Oscar was nominated. Um, I, re- I-, I looked at it, uh, and the reason I didn't choose it, firstly, it was I hadn't seen the film that had won. I can't even remember the name of it now. Uh, so I didn't feel it was fair to make that comparison and say this film should have won when I, when I hadn't even seen the winner. And I'm sure the other... The other gents here were the same. Well, uh, I've, not seen C- I've not seen Citizen Kane, so I wasn't going to... Would it be wrong of me to say that doesn't surprise me, Steve? Oh, it's in... <laughs> Sorry, I'm meant to be rebutting to Pang as wrong. I'll, I'll leave you alone, Steve. <laughs> it's, in, it's in black and white. I'm not interested. <laughs> um, and this week he said he's already given me a warning that if um, no one chooses The Godfather, he's going to cut me up, apparently. So, um, at Pang is wrong, I'm going to tell you now. I, spoiler alert, I haven't cho- chosen The Godfather. I think it's an amazing film but I've not read Mario Puzo's uh, original source material, and I decided I'm going to have to have read the source material for mine before I decide whether or not I like, you know, com- compare the films. But also, I just want to say, this this triple bill section, I, I don't see it, and I don't know how you guys feel, but I never see it as, well, I'm going to choose the three best films that everyone knows and talks about that fit into this category. Otherwise, I'm sure there'd be a way we could crowbar The Godfather, Citizen Kane, uh, into every week um, by you know some dint of things. Well, the way I look at it is I do it as if I'm programming, or my, um, if, if I was going to program a film night uh, on a certain theme. Part of me wants to remind people of some great or even some underrated films, but at the same time, I'd like to try and introduce films to people that they may not have heard of or seen before. So I have not got The Godfather this week because everyone knows The Godfather's a great film. It doesn't need 
me talking about it over and over again. And also, like I said, I haven't read the source material. So there, there's my rebuttal. Pang, pang is wrong. Um, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't chosen Godfather either. But yes. also because I haven't read the source material. And I know it's not really the sort of strict criteria for choosing three films no. adapted novels. But I haven't chosen it for, for that reason. Also, like you say, we've been talking about it every week. I talked about it, was it two podcasts ago? I yeah. thought, I can't keep choosing like the best films well, and I try and choose sort of um, films I either like or, or think fit the criteria well, of it. Well, I think the difference is is we're not looking for the best films in a certain category we're looking for our favourite films uh, I think that's a that's a very good point sometimes sometimes the two will meet and be the same yes. um, but obviously if you're picking the best films in each category every every week then you'd get so much crossover it would end up just being a quite a boring segment of the podcast. Yes, true. Yeah, excellent. Right, so rebuttal done. Uh, yeah. Consider yourself yeah. uh, reprimanded. You've been Hank's you've role. been rebutted. Yes, <laughs> vigorously. <laughs> that sounds saucier than it should be. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not quite sure saucy is the word, but anyway. Um. Who wants to kick this part off then? Best novel to film adaptations. Oh, go on, I'll do it. I've, I've written my notes now. I wrote my notes while <laughs> during the last section, so I'll start. Um, I've, just to let everyone know as well, Jerry was meant to be returning to us today. Um, he, his operation went well and he's recovering and everything, uh, but O2 have let him down with internet this morning, so he can't come on, but I have got Jerry's list as well, which I'll give everyone at the end. But my list, uh, I'll start off with uh, a film from 1947. It's in black and white, I'm afraid, Steve. Uh, directed by John Bolting. And it was written... Uh, the, the original novel was written by Graham Greene. And he also wrote the screenplay for the film. And it's Brighton Rock, starring Richard Attenborough. Um, the story is about uh, Pinky, uh, played by Richard Attenborough, in one of the most cold, heartless, cynical performances I've ever seen from an actor. It's absolutely fantastic. He is almost evil personified, but you, he's a very young person. I think in the book he's 19. Um, I read the book absolute years ago. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. The film is also fantastic. It's set in Brighton um, just after the Second World War, and the country's getting back on its feet, but there is a criminal underca- uh, underclass exploding uh, across the provinces, basically. And... Uh, a man comes to Brighton and is murdered by Pinky and his gang. Uh, it's a, a kind of old gang score being uh, sorted. But he is seen by a waitress at a restaurant and he marries her, he seduces her and marries her to keep her quiet. Uh, and then the rest of the film is about her loyalties being tested and the crime is being investigated by an- another lady who's looking into these things. I don't want to talk too much about the film and spoil it because it is a beautifully plotted film and it is also very, very close to the original material as well. But the film is more of a film noir, whereas the book is quite a lot about Catholic guilt and things like that. So, But it works because the different mediums can tell different stories, I think. You can go a lot more into the psychology, uh, into the, the religion and the Catholic guilt aspect in a novel, uh, whereas on film... Uh, film is a medium of movement uh, so you do need to keep the action going it's got a fantastic climax that takes place on Brighton Pier um, 
it's just a wonderful, wonderful British film, and I, I never get tired of watching it. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. I, no, no, I, I haven't, I haven't seen the film or read the book, but it's one of those where, you know, if you ask for a book recommendation from people, they go, "Oh, have you read Brighton Rock?" Or if you, you know, you ask for a sort of film noir, and they go, "Oh, have you seen Brighton Rock?" So it's one of those that keeps getting recommendations, but I've never. And, and, and there, there are re- there, there's definite reasons for those. There is also there has been a remake of Brighton Rock, the film. Um, it's one of those where they've remade the film rather than made another film of the book kind of thing. It's it's a, it's a very very small definition, but I think it's important. But they updated it to the '60s modern rocker kind of movement, kind of made a bit of a quadrophenia type thing of it. That was out. I think last year or the year before. I've not seen that yet, to be honest, and I'm not hugely enthusiastic about going to see it when the original film is so absolutely brilliant in my eyes. Um, the next one I've got, uh, and I'll be up there was crossover with me and Jerry on this one actually, and there might well be crossover here. I'm going to just say um, Jurassic Park from 1993. Uh, yeah, cr- crossover. <laughs> crossover. Oh, let's have a chat about it again. This is very Spielberg heavy this episode, but yeah, obviously. Directed by Steven Spielberg, um, written by uh, again another one on my list, which was uh, the screenplay was written by the person who wrote the book, and I think that that tends Michael. to be a mark of Michael Crichton. Yeah, I yeah. think that tends to be a mark of quality. I think you can be a little bit more confident going in to see a film <laughs> where the author has adapted their own work. Uh, I, I don't, I, I've not, I've not done a scientific study on that. That's based on the references <laughs> on my list, but. Um, I do think logically that should work. Yeah, of course. Again, Richard Attenborough in this film as well. I've got a bit of a thread going on here, but um, yeah, the, everyone knows Jurassic Park, the story of uh, uh, of Hammond. He sets up his island near Costa Rica with a load of genetically created dinosaurs uh, and plans to open an amusement park for the world to come and see. It's a very, very good Spielbergian. Quite quite an 80s Spielberg. Yeah, it was 93, I think. Yeah, so yeah, the real Amblin style Spielberg of adventure, some funny lines, some great characters, and a happy ending. Yeah. It, whereas the book is actually very different. The book is quite dark. Um, I, I don't. I remember yeah, people die don't die in the film, and also the ending is really really downbeat. If I remember it correctly, is that a? Can you remember it, Owen? Yeah, I don't think it's a really, really downbeat ending to the, the the book, but it's definitely not the same happy ending that they yeah. get in the film. It's not the same. It's not. I wouldn't say it was. You know. Okay, maybe completely depressing. Well, ending. well, I I I, oh I picked Jurassic Park as well, and I had a quick look at just the the sort of synopsis of the book quickly. Yeah. And the the ending is is pretty different, <laughs> and it does yeah, seem a bit it more. Is, it, it does it does seem a bit it does seem a bit more depressing. Yeah, Hammond and Malcolm die, and the rest of them all get arrested and put in prison. Yeah, except yeah, except uh, for the except for the kids. I think I read it as a fifteen <laughs> sixteen year old. I yeah. saw the, this is one where I saw the film first um, when I was about twelve thirteen. Mm-hmm. I read it as a fifteen sixteen year old. And I do remember thinking. Wow, this is quite dark. And also, I think the book was the book's very much an adult book, whereas the film is a family film. Uh, so I, you can understand the change in tone. Um, possibly Spielberg's last great film. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if anyone 
if he's done anything brilliant since then. It's definitely his best film. I didn't. I get slated a bit, but he did AI as well, didn't he? Which I he did. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. That's misunderstood. I think AI. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a brilliant film. It's got some fantastic. And again, I don't think it's dated. Uh, I really don't think it is dated much. I went to see. I went to see it in the cinema earlier this year because they re-released it. Uh, and I think it's due out in 3D next year, which is I'm not going to go and bother going to see. Um, but it still looks really good. Um, and it's another one of those films with uh, Samuel L. Jackson, which is added to his tag as uh, the highest grossing actor of all time as well. Because he's, he, I think Jurassic Park added a fair chunk to that little uh, that little stat as well. But yeah, no, it's a it's a brilliant film. Um, still still scary in parts. Uh, and I, I, I can't wait for my daughter. I can't wait to watch it with my daughter and see her get really scared. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds cruel. I don't mean it like that. <laughs> yeah, I, the, I, it was one of, I think it's the first film I saw, or at least it's the first film I can remember seeing in the cinema. And, uh, yeah, I, I, it was amazing. It just blew my mind at the time. And uh, my little brother, I think, must have been... He must have been about five years old at the time, five or six. And uh, there's the bit where the T-Rex eats the lawyer, isn't it, off the toilet. Yeah, yeah. He was crying through that, had to be taken out of the cinema, whereas I was just loving it. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. But even now, you're right, it hasn't dated. You can watch it back now. I didn't see it in the cinema, but I saw it on the recently released uh, Blu-ray yeah. edition. And it's still just superb. I still, I still think the first... Is it sort of 15, 20 minutes up to the point where Richard Attenborough gives his welcome to Jurassic Park? Yeah. It's, it's faultless, I think. It's just exactly what the film should be. It's yeah. full of adventure and wonder. You, you watch it and it just gets more and more and more incredible. The, yeah. the book is it, it's a bit more heavy on the science. So like he and yes, Malcolm, it is. Yeah. yeah, there's a load of chaos. that you know, He really yeah. goes into chaos theory in the book. I do remember that, yeah. That's right. So the, the film, it does capture a little bit of that element to it. It does keep it fairly um, uh, science-based, I guess. But it it it, be, it becomes more of an adventure book, uh, adventure film than the book is an adventure book. The book's more of a science adventure. Or at least it's sort of an adventure science film. Yeah. And I think um, it's just an incredible film. And also, it back then, Spielberg could still do family scenes without them being schmaltzy there's some yeah. really good kind of family dynamics um with the two kids and the fact that uh sam neil's character is you know at first he's not and he's forced together with these children and but it, those scenes really work and there's a lot of heart in those scenes um and it was the same in jaws actually there's some really nice uh in the first half of jaws some really nice family scenes with Brody and his son that are just natural and work and it's almost at some point Spielberg lost that, uh, and I think it's a shame. Um, it's yeah, also uh, a film I would say is probably better than the book. But you don't get them yes, very often. Yeah, but I, yeah, think no, I, th- I think I'd agree with you on that one. They're, they're, they're different, and they do different jobs. Um, but in terms of technical skill and enjoyment, yeah, no, I think I'd agree with you on that one. Um, and my last choice uh, is from 2009. Um, and I've seen it about ten times in the last week because it's my current, it's my daughter's current favourite film. It's Fantastic Mr. Fox, the Wes Anderson uh, version. Um, I had a few options actually for Roald Dahl, and I don't know if they, they popped up on anyone else's, so I won't go into it. Obviously, Roald Dahl couldn't really um, contribute to this screenplay because he's sadly, sadly not with us. But it was um, 
written by Wes Anderson. It's apparent this was the first book that Wes Anderson ever read, and it was for, uh, his mum bought it for him. He's still got that copy, which is really nice. I reread Fantastic Mr. Fox this week because I probably haven't read it in the last 20 years. So I wanted to... And surprisingly, the plot of the film is, is pretty much the plot of the book. I thought, in my head, um, Wes Anderson's film had just taken the idea of a fox who went round thieving and the three farmers, Boggis, Bunce and Bean, uh, and then made a, a very Wes Anderson film. Because it does feel like a very Wes Anderson dysfunctional family drama. And I, I think that's really interesting. Because you've got George Clooney playing the fantastic Mr. Fox, Meryl Streep. And my wife said he still manages to be really hot and sexy, even though <laughs> said just his voice. Like she, she fantasizes about Mr. Fox, I think. Um, but Meryl Streep's in it as Mrs. Fox. Uh, Jason Schwartzman plays one of their, uh, plays their son, Ash. Um, Bill Murray's in it as a badger lawyer and demolitions expert. Um, and, the thing I love about it, actually, is, to be honest, I can see where some of the criticisms came that said it's not a kid's film. They expected a kid's film. It's it's not a kid's film. It's a Wes Anderson film. Um, but in this universe where animals have characters and can talk to each other. And for my mind, it works better than any other Wes Anderson film. Because what I find when I'm watching Wes Anderson films, I enjoy them, um, but... I find it sometimes difficult to suspend my disbelief on these characters because a lot of the characters in Wes Anderson films just aren't realistic enough for me. They're funny and they're interesting and they, you know, they have quirks and things like that, but they're too quirky. Um, they've got too many weird things that they do. And I go, that's not a believable person. But with Fantastic Mr. Fox, I don't have to make that leap because we're talking about foxes and badges and stuff like that. So they can have they can make stupid decisions. They can do things that are weird because they're animals. They're animals using explosives and riding motorbikes and stuff like that. So I've, I'm past that already. And now I can just enjoy it for what it is. And it, the whole thing looks like a Wes Anderson film, uh, from the font used, uh, some fantastic music choices like, uh, the Rolling Stone Street Fighting Man. Um, there's a, an original song by Jarvis Cocker, who plays one of the workmen called PT, who plays kind of banjo inspired, uh, banjo song inspired by Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I've just got one great, there's a beautiful story, uh, about how near the end of the film, uh, Mr. Fox and some of his gang, uh, meet in the distance, they see in the distance a wolf. Uh, and the whole film he's been talking about is fear of wolves and he talks to the wolf. And the wolf doesn't talk back. And it's just this beautiful kind of poetic moment. And apparently during filming, because uh, they used to get all the actors together to talk through the scenes. So the actors actually acted out the scenes and then animation was done after that kind of thing. It's really interesting. But Bill Murray apparently said, we've got no one to play the wolf. The wolf doesn't speak in the film. <laughs> and Bill Murray went, there's no one to play, but I'll play the wolf. And apparently Bill Murray just went as far away from everyone as possible and stood there and acted as the wolf, and they responded to that. And I just, that's a lovely story. I love it anyway, uh, and that really does ring true from things I've heard about him. Uh, it's got some brilliant lines in there, like I say, some fantastic music, and it really adds something, because the book is actually, the book's pretty much a pamphlet. I read it in about half an hour, 40 minutes the other night, um, and the book, uh, the film just expands on it so much, and it, it takes the, the skeleton and puts a Wes Anderson flesh on it. And it, it's fantastic. 
And it is, is, I would say the film is better than the book in this instance. And I'll probably get shot for that sacrilege mess around with Roald Dahl. But the film is just so much more than the book was. Um, it made, it makes me so happy. I'm happy to watch it every day. It's a brilliant, brilliant film. Well, Owen, should we go on to yours? We've all picked Jurassic Park, so we might as well go straight on to your second nomination. Yeah, Jurassic Park. <laughs> um, well, the second film then I picked, um, which I was going to talk about first anyway, is uh, Frankenstein, the uh, James Whale version from the 1930s. Oh, because yeah. because the, the book by Mary Shelley, um, you know, the modern Prometheus, it's mm-hmm. possibly one of my favourite books. I get stuck between... Choosing Frankenstein and We by Yevgeny Zamyatin, which hasn't been adapted into anything other than a German-made TV film, so I can't pick that one. Uh, but Frankenstein is—it's it's great. I mean, it's very different. It, it, you know, I, I watched the film quite a long time after I'd read the book, and I thought, yeah, I mean, it's a really good film. It's—you know—it's got a lot of sadness in it. A lot of the story about betrayal, sort of despair. Um, and it's it's well written, but it's basically a creature feature. Then I reread the book, and then I had a, a new appreciation for the film itself because I thought, well, they have captured a lot of the same elements. I mean, the the, the thing about Mary Shelley's book is it, 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 like I say, it's the modern Prometheus. It's about man creating life where yeah. perhaps it shouldn't. You know, messing with you know all these different science. How far should science go? obsession and, and, and all these fun things, all these different elements that, that, that come into it. Well, the film, it does have that in it. It has all of the same the same themes to it. It, it just tells the story in a slightly um, a different way. It's, I mean, where the film is more sympathetic with the, with Boris Karloff's character as, you know, the wretch, as the, the monster. Mm. The, the book is more sympathetic with Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein. But they, they both they both kind of develop around the same the same principles really, and um, the, but the film is great. I mean, it, the, the performances from um, from Karloff and from um, I'm trying to think what his name is, Colin Clive, Colin Clive. That's it. But they're both both great characters in it. That there's great scenes. You know, once you've watched it once, you, everything stays in your mind. Really. You, you can watch it again and it and again and again, and it's just it just gets better with each watch. I think. And yeah, okay, it's it's from the nineteen thirties. It's um sorry Steve, but it's black and white as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was only joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> but uh, but no, it's it, I don't think it's dated terribly. You know, Bride, Bride of Frankenstein is perhaps a better film uh, on balance, um, but it, it's kind of dated a little bit more, I think. And Frankenstein is obviously, I can talk about the sequel, Bride of Frankenstein, and ignore Frankenstein, which is the direct remake of the book. But the, no, I really like the film. I really like the, the story. Um, you know, all, it's, like I say, I keep going back to these, these, these ideas of the themes and the science behind the whole thing and the, the, um, the despair through the characters. And, and again, again, just about the obsession, this um, endless idea he can't get over this this idea that he he shouldn't be able to create life it should be a god-given right for man to create life as well yeah and it captures all it captures all that it, 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 it's they, they sort of go hand in hand i guess the book and the film yeah. um, whereas if you read the book you appreciate the film if it's in the film 
perhaps don't, doesn't make you appreciate the book better, but it gives you this 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 bigger picture, I guess. And um, you know, like I say, telling the story from different sides of the coin with the characters. And uh, no, I, yeah, it's a great film and great book. So that's my similar thing. issues to Jurassic Park as well. You know, the whole uh, uh, they they were too busy trying to the the uh, Mar, um, Ian Malcolm quote too busy. Uh, trying to see if they could do it, they didn't think about whether they should do it, kind of thing, and that whole yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. man, yeah, you know, the the danger of science, yeah, no, definitely. Mm. So yeah, that was my second choice. I I, I really do like that film, and um, you know, James Wales from from my neck of the woods as well. So I have to try and shoehorn him into a few of these triple bills at some point. <laughs> um, but anyway, my my third choice, which I don't know whether I'll get away with this, but we'll see, is. Um, a HBO adaptation of uh, an Andrew Ross Sorkin book, which is called Too Big to Fail, which is about financial collapse and financial crisis from sort of a period of time between sort of July and October 2008. Okay. And it's although the book is very much um, the um, it's the story of what happened, so it follows very specific people, but it's written by Andrew Ross Sorkin, who is um, a reporter for the um, for the New York Times, I think it is, and he he has this um, this way of telling the story rather than just giving you facts and making it really dry and really really droll. Yeah, he, he tells it in a way that's it brings the whole thing to life. He, he gives you background on all the characters, and um, it gives you this this sense of um, time elapsing. So things as it, it builds up to a sort of a crescendo where you know. We're in sort of September 2008, where the whole thing just fell in on itself. It's, it's very incisive, and, 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 but it is exceptionally detailed. So the thought of the, the film, I thought it might struggle to really adapt that story without making it too dry. But it, it, it's been pulled off very well, and it's got great performances. The cast is magnificent. It's got Jim Matty in it, who's... Uh, he basically gets to deliver all of the big speeches at the end, the big dramatic speeches for the film. So he sort of ties it together towards the end. But the, the, the sort of star of the film is um, William Hurt, who plays Hank Paulson, who um, was the Secretary of the Treasury at the time. But he's um, it's a brilliant performance. He sort of he guides you through the film, whereas in the book it's not really about Hank Paulson, more about the bigger picture, but the film follows his side of the, the story almost whilst giving you insight to other people. It does leave out a bit too much. Uh, I, I, Dick Fold, who was the CEO of Lehman Brothers, he um, was the most fascinating part of the book. I don't know if you know anything about him. Uh, thought, bits, yeah. Yeah, so he sort of came from basically nothing, worked his way up through the, the company and, you know, I'm saying nothing, it wasn't exactly nothing like by sort of our standards, I guess. But he came from, from sort of nowhere to become the CEO of one of the biggest uh, investment banks in the world. Um, but he's kind of not really developed enough in the film. So you don't, right. don't kind of get the sense of where he's come from. But it's a good performance from James Woods as Dick Fold. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't really tell the whole, the whole show, I guess, about him. But and it does have other flaws to it as well. So like I say, it glosses over some things. Like um, you don't really get the sense of how much the Americans were kind of screwed over by Barclays and Alistair Darling. Yeah. And, you know, probably saved Britain from taking on all this toxic debt. But I don't think this is the right place to get into politics. But 
but it's, it, you know, it, it does have, a, it kind of mentions it, but it doesn't, doesn't give you the scope that it is needed. Um, I mean, Bob Diamond doesn't feature in the film at all, for example. Right. But it's a very good political drama, um, very engaging. It's, it's, it's just really good. <laughs> it's, it's definitely worth a watch. If you like sort of political dramas, um, I think, what did we talk about the other week? I know. Uh, Jay Edgar. Jay Edgar, yeah. yeah. It's not, a, it's not really a biopic, but it is very, very interesting and scary. I mean, we talked about Frankenstein and Jurassic Park, which have got scary bits to it. The whole of <laughs> Too Big to Fail is just really scary about what could have happened and how bad it actually was. And, you know, some of the, the characters involved in it, it's just terrifying. But it's, oh, okay. uh, that sounds really interesting because um, I, I wanted to go and see Margin Call that was out recently, which is very, very similar kind of topic, uh, and I didn't get a chance to see that yet because that I do like. Sometimes I do like having my um, my uh, current affairs and politics and stuff fed to me via nice <laughs> easy to watch films, to be honest. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I've added that to my list of things that I must see now. So thank you very much. It's all right. I'll try and bring up some more then. <laughs> but it's not on Netflix. I've just had a look. That's, that's oh, then it. Uh, it is HBO. I think it, I don't know if it was re- ever released in the cinemas, but it should definitely be on sort of Blu-ray or DVD. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Well, should we move on to my choices then? Why not? Why Go not, on, indeed. <laughs> uh, obviously, I picked Jurassic Park as well, so my second choice is Bridget Jones' Diary. Controversial. <laughs> yeah, I'm only joking. <laughs> oh, there's no way I've read or watched that, trust me. <laughs> no, my first choice is Children of Men. Okay. Adapted yeah. from a novel of the same name by P.D. James. It just, it tells a story of basically the world in what turns out to be about 10 years time. And for some reason, no human can have children anymore there's some problem that's happened worldwide and no new people are being born um the film stars clive owen and julianne moore and it's it's quite a good well it's a very good film um stars michael caine as well i don't know if either of you have seen it i've seen the film i've not read the book no yeah i have read the the film and you're gonna have to really sell it to me now because i didn't like it I just thought it was, I just thought it was quite, quite an interesting idea to the kind of whole end of your world dystopian future thing. Um, I thought Clive Owen was quite good and it is an interesting story. The book and the, the film are different in a few ways, but I mean, it's, it's basically the same kind of thing. How about you, James? Did you like it or? I, 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 I'm just trying to remember. I remember liking it. Uh, but I saw it all, quite a while ago now, not long after it was out, I think. I, I definitely liked the idea. I liked the concept. I lo- and I do love near-future sci-fi, you know, the in-the-not-too-distant-future dystopian type. Of a, that always automatically appeals to me. I, I, I remember it being a performance by Clive Owen that I enjoyed, which was good. That's a bonus. Mm. Um, is Michael Caine in it? Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, it is. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do know a lot of people don't think the film looks really great, and then there's an argument as to whether or not that's uh, intended, uh, and if it is intended, whether or not it even works, kind of thing. Because I think it, I think we can all agree that the kind of very drab grey palette of the film was intended, 
uh, and it's about whether or not you you kind of can appreciate that or not, or if you think that it's lazy or it just doesn't look very good. I do remember really enjoying it, but it never. I never really thought about it much afterwards. Mm. Um, uh, and I do think I really like British sci-fi. I, it felt very Brit. It still felt very British, and I, I I liked that. I liked some of the really quite almost low-key, low-fi set pieces uh, with the like uh, the Land Rover and stuff. I, yeah, I I I, re- I think I need to watch it again to be honest because mm. I. I I haven't watched it with my critic's hat on before. I just watched it as uh, yeah. a rented DVD type person at the time. So I want to watch it again now. You've, you've at least made me want to watch it again, Steve. I, I did want to pick another film in the same vein because the book is brilliant, which is... Um... Why am I... What is wrong with me this morning? <laughs> I'm the one with the hangover, Steve. Come on, get over it. <laughs> oh, I don't know what's wrong with me this morning. This is ridiculous. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to think of some films in the same vein. I'm uh, trying to I'm trying to think of what it is in the book, and it's, it's got Will Smith in it. Uh, oh, I Am Legend. That's it. I Am Legend. The book of I Am Legend is absolutely fantastic, and the film could have been absolutely fantastic, but despite Will Smith and his pet dog's best efforts, it it wasn't, and that was just quite disappointing because the book is brilliant um but no i went for another one of my childhood favorite films and i can't see why your daughter wouldn't love this film as well james the incredible journey which until looking into this i didn't realize was adapted from a book which is obviously homeward bound the incredible journey as the film Uh, title yes uh is that the the cat and the dog and something else cat and two dogs yeah oh cat and two dogs yeah okay yeah gotcha I can still watch this film if it turns up on telly now. It's, I think it's that, I enjoy it that much. And yeah, it was written originally by a Scottish author, Sheila Burnford, but I've not read the book because it was written ages ago. I didn't really realise it's a book. But yeah, basically, a family who own these pets are going away for a bit and leave their pets with a family friend a few hundred miles away from home for some reason. I don't know, I don't know why. Um, and the pets decide to try and find their way back home which they do in the end after traversing what seems like half of the united states and meeting various friends and foes and dangers and one of the dogs is voiced by michael j fox yeah i've seen it as a kid uh, i haven't seen it since since well i don't know since since i was about sort of 10 i guess but it's um yeah i can, I can remember it always made me cry whenever i saw it that's one of the things Aww. i can remember from it <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's, there's some there's some bits that if if you don't feel sort of a bit sad in parts of it, then you've got no soul. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch that with my daughter now. She likes dogs and cats on screen, yeah. so there you uh, go. And it reminds me actually. Just uh, one of my friends is moving house at the moment, and um, their cat disappeared for three months, two three months, and um, they thought cat's gone forever. And when they were house hunting, they went round, they had an appointment to go and view a house, and they went round there, and their cat was waiting on the doorstep. How cool is that? So <laughs> I, just, it just remind, I think that could be Homeward Bound. There must have been a few more, but yeah, incredible journey, a very British bunch. <laughs> yeah, there, there, were a couple of se- there were a couple of sequels to the film, but they were nowhere near as good as this one. And it's, well, I mean, I used to watch it all the time as a child, so it's definitely one of my favourite, or was one of my favourite, book to film adaptations even though I haven't read the book 
That's a that's a lovely choice. Uh, it's a very choice, unexpected yeah. out of left field choice, but mm. that's why you're here, Steve. Yes. Um, so what's next week's triple bill? Well, I'm just going to quickly read out Jerry's as well. Jerry also had Jurassic Park, so I think I say I think I'm absolutely certain that is our first ever um, triple bill full house. So well done, Steven Spielberg, for getting onto every one of our lists with Jurassic Park. Um, Jerry also. Uh, massively Spielberg heavy. Um, Jerry also uh, said L.A. Confidential, uh, which I mentioned last week as one of my favourite films that should have won the Oscar. And also Apocalypse Now, based on the, the novel Heart of Darkness. And he said it's very interesting because um, Jerry's uh, reading Jerry here. Uh, partly what makes it great is how successfully he takes one of the finest novels ever written and adapts it to modern times without making it shit or losing the themes at the heart of it, says Jerry. Because, of course, uh, Heart of Darkness is based on the uh, the Belgian exploits in the Congo and uh, transplanting that to the Vietnam War. Um, so that's Jerry's choices. Next week, um, you've really caught me on the hop here. I, I've forgotten what it is. Hang on. Uh, no, <laughs> that's terrible, isn't it? We're, we're just so professional. Um I, I honestly can't remember. Um, I've got it here. Uh, so yeah, our next week we're doing our favourite documentaries. There we go. So uh, next week's triple bill is our favourite documentaries um, ever. So, 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 so essentially for me it's just going to be free football documentaries. Quite possibly, yeah. as long as they're all good. Uh, there's, there's a few good ones. Yeah, ever since I got Netflix, I've really started watching loads of documentaries. Netflix mm. is fantastic. I, I, I think I need to change from, from Love Film to Netflix. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Love Film's good for um, the discs and things like that, but Netflix mm. are fantastic. No, I, I, I switched because there was some problem when Netflix first came out with, with Nat West. For some reason, they couldn't take the direct debit from them every month. So oh, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't working, so I got into an argument, sulked and changed to Love Film, but I think I'll be changing back. Anyway, let's get on to... exciting direct debit chat after this. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yes, more exciting chat, but about... Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. So for the final part, we'll be doing this in two parts again, uh, as we usually do. So we'll be talking about Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, without spoilers. Then we'll move on to a spoiler alert where we, uh, if you haven't seen it, will ruin the film for you in its entirety. So we'll warn you when that bit's coming up. Um, so don't listen to that if you haven't seen it or don't want it spoiled. So yes, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. James, do you want to introduce the film for everybody? Yes, okay, so uh, this film also based on a novel, uh, which I think must be why I chose to do the triple bill this week, but based on the novel by uh, Seth Gordon Graham, uh, it's basically about Abraham Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States, um, and it explores his secret life as a vampire hunter. Uh, as a young man, he discovers that bloodthirsty vampires are planning to take over the United States. And he makes it his mission to eliminate them, becoming history's greatest hunter of the undead. So says Anonymous on IMDb, and I happen to agree in that sense. <laughs> and, well, quickly, what do we all think of the film? Uh, we'll start with Owen. Um, yeah, mm, well, mm, <laughs> I don't... Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I think it, it did 
well to take itself seriously instead of making it just a stupid slapstick, silly film. Can, can I get away? Is that it? Do I need to say more? No, no, we don't want to. No, no. That's, that's, <laughs> I can't force the words out of you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying, although part of me did want a little bit more fun in it. It yeah. did. It was played with a supremely straight face. Yeah, there, there were a few kind of like jokes and quips and things, but the actual the narrative and the the whole uh, environment that it took place in was played with a very very straight face. And at times, I just found it a little bit difficult to um, to believe. Oh, I say that, that sounds really. I find it really difficult to believe that Abraham Lincoln went around fighting vampires. <laughs> yeah, obviously, I find that difficult to believe. You do need to suspend your disbelief, but. Um, yeah, there was. Certain, I think the the link to slavery may at times made it a bit uncomfortable for me because it was almost on one hand it was a fun, stupid action film about vampires, and connecting that to slavery partly at times made me really uncomfortable, and it also made me feel it, it almost felt a bit offensive at times <laughs> that it was making that link. I don't know. Maybe that was just me. Maybe I'm just being less sensitive I this mean, week. I mean, I, I did like the film. I found it reasonably enjoyable without obviously being a great film. It was certainly watchable. I could see why some people would make that link with slavery and, and think that, but I just thought, well, no, that's probably taken a bit too far because they didn't change, they didn't change the reason for slavery, so they didn't really trivialise it. They just sort of yeah. implied that the vampires were making the most of... Because they said in the film that the vampires had been in North America for for centuries, and first they were, you know, going through the Native Americans and the early settlers, and then the white man brought all their slaves over and they exploited that opportunity for themselves to obviously get an easy source of what essentially feeds them. And it didn't take away from any of the good work that... Obviously, Abraham Lincoln and Harriet Tubman did in in the in the slavery movement in freeing the slaves. So I don't think it I don't think it did trivial. It did slightly, but not sort of anything that I would have thought would be greatly offensive. But I just thought the film was was you know it was quite fun. It was reasonably enjoyable without being without being a great film. It looked good. I will give it that. It did, you know, there was a lot of, uh, well, the fact is it's from the same director who did the Russian vampires. So he, he was in familiar territory, uh, the Nightwatch film, uh, Daywatch, oh, it's terrible, but Nightwatch is great. Um, uh, but he, you know, and he did Wanted as well. Um, but it had, it had a definite visual style to it. Which fitted uh, as well, and there was some really like quite very cool bits. Watching bits of it were, uh, and yeah, we'll go on to spoiler alert where there were some really good bits, and there was some, there was a few bits of shocking CGI I thought as well. But um, overall, no, it was it would it reminded me away of something like Wild Wild West or um, uh, it yeah, wasn't those, that bad. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it would you know that kind of steampunk. Um, advanced technology before it's time type of thing. Yeah, it had that feel. Um, the same, as, it reminded me of bits I've seen. I've not, I've not actually probably seen the films of like the most recent Sherlock Holmes films mm. and things like that. Um, yeah. I, I saw it in 2D as well. I, I don't know if that, I, I, I can't comment on the 3D aspects of the film. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to come on to that as well. Because I, oh, okay, yeah. I didn't see it in 3D, I saw it in 2D and Maybe. Yeah, it, yeah, it looked good. And you know what? Um, 
I remember when we talked about Dark Shadows recently, we said, right, Dark Shadows script is written by the same guy who wrote this, um, and it's produced, and this is produced by Tim Burton. And I said, well, I've completely lowered what expectations I had for this. Yeah, this was better than Dark Shadows by a long way. So, yeah, there's something at least. But you were going to talk about the 3D, Owen. Well, I was just going to say, you talked earlier about it having its own sort of visual identity. I think yeah. there are two things that make up that visual identity. One is um, the fact that I got sick to death of the slow motion. <laughs> yeah, there was far too there much slow motion in it. Yeah. Every single fight scene in it featured slow motion at least three or four times, uh, which really sort of did my head to the end. And also the 3D element to it, because it was it was set up to be... 3D film. There were there were far too many scenes in it, which are just basically things flying at the screen. Which right. Um, but it, what, what, watching it in 2D, I didn't I didn't notice that. Oh, I didn't ever think this is really a film that was made for 3D. And I can't stand 3D. I won't ever really like 3D until they make a way of watching it without having a stupid pair of bloody glasses on your face. <laughs> yeah. Because I already wear glasses. I don't want another pair. <laughs> I saw it in 2D as well, actually, but, I mean, you, you watch something like Prometheus, so I saw that in 3D. I think the opening scenes to that, that's how, that works with the 3D. Yes. It's not just, you know, if you've ever seen the rest of the development, they make, make fun of it with Job throwing something. Yes, yeah, the camera. throwing an apple that, at the screen. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically what Abraham Lincoln was like to me. There were lots of scenes where you're watching it. I just got the impression that the things that flew across the screen Particularly the bit with the horses. Yeah. It's just supposed to be seen in 3D, and I. Yeah, that was it. that was the bit of terrible CGI. Well, that, didn't, that didn't look well. That didn't look good at all. It did not look good at all. And having now heard Owen say that, yeah, that bit was designed for you. Could, and at times I was watching, it going like bits around the edge of the just edge of the frame seemed out of focus or something like that. And I was thinking, is that a hangover from uh, the 3D? I don't know. It doesn't. Yeah. You know, but there were, you know, the, the fight scenes uh, had a very, um, oh, I can't, uh, the director's track, oh, do you know what, I'm really not in a fit state to be trying to pronounce that director, Tim, I'm just going to call him Timor, because uh, we're on first name terms. Um, yeah, they they did remind me a lot of um, of Nightwatch, actually. Uh, and But I think you're right, they did go on a little bit too long. Uh, I think I think the axe was a, a cool move. I quite like the axe. Mm. Uh, a lot of good I axe did like movement. the axe too as well, yeah. I like the way he'd just walk around spinning the axe as if he was sort of rocking, jabbing at thin air kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite cool. Um, and yeah, there were some good bits. Um, I think Benjamin Walker's Abraham Lincoln was actually very good. Mm. I, I think um, he, he I, I liked him. Uh, as, and I like Dominic Cooper yeah, as who, Henry Sturgis uh, who, as well. Who was, who was playing essentially a 19th century blade. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so, and they had some good interplay and there was, yeah, there was a training montage. I couldn't believe it when they actually just did a training montage. That's <laughs> like, okay, that's that ticked off. Um, there are a few other good, but Rufus Sewell was as he always is as a bad guy. He's a, he's a very dependable bad guy. He just looks bad. Um, and, you know, he was typically, although his accent threw me a little bit, because I always expected him to be the English bad guy, and then all of, and I swear first few scenes he was English, and then halfway through he went really southern, I couldn't, it seemed to come out of nowhere for me, but maybe it's because I was 
not paying proper attention. Alan Tudyk, I was really happy to see quite early on as the uh, the senator who wasn't anti-slavery. Uh, because I, I, I just like Alan Tudyk being in stuff. He's really good. Um, I, I quite like... There was a, Obviously, there's a couple of twists in the film that we can't really talk about until the next yeah. part. But, I mean, they were quite good. And, all the, I've, you know, part of it you didn't see coming. In, in, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you can't really talk about this to the next part, but... But yeah, it, yeah, it had, it had a decent plot in, in the sense that it is as decent as it can be. And I did like the way it married a lot of real life people and events to a completely fictional account. Mm. Um, but um, um, part of my complaint is when, when, when I hear the title Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, uh, when I first heard that title and then I saw the trailer and got disappointed because it had a lot of young Abraham Lincoln, um, I, I still, again, and I shouldn't criticise a film for not being the film that I want it to be, but when I hear a title, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, I want to see the President of the United States of America going around killing vampires. And, it, you know, this whole, it was the story of before we became president. It, it, was, it was like an origin story almost, wasn't mm. it? Um, and it was almost like, oh, okay, can I have a few more films of a President of the United States fighting? It's almost set up so that he's going to carry on fighting vampires as the President. Mm. Um, and then there was but obviously it's not set up like that and we can talk about that as well. Um but yeah, so I I I, lo- I think I liked the idea of it more than I liked the execution. I, I think I think yeah. a good way to sort of summarize what I thought of it was I enjoyed it so much that I wouldn't buy it on DVD or Blu-ray, but if it came when it comes on the Sky or Love Film or Netflix, so I don't have to watch it with adverts, which is what ruins films on ITV for me. Or Channel yeah. 4. But anyway, if it come onto Sky or a medium of watching it where I didn't have to pay for it or watch it with adverts, I would watch it again. Ah, that's, I think that's fair enough, yeah. Which obviously, which sort of suggests that it, it was good and watchable without being fantastic or terrible. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, it, it was, it, yeah, it wasn't atrocious by any stretch of the imagination. It was a technically proficiently put together film. I think that's kind of the problem with it, though. I, I yeah. wanted it to be either one end of the spectrum or the other. I wanted it to be so absolutely awesome that it was, yeah. you know, it took this this absurd premise and made it into this really epic film that was just full of all these things that the fourteen-year-old in you that that thing wrong. You know, the, 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 when you were fourteen-year-old, when you were watching it, you would love absolutely everything about it. Or it was one of these films that is just so bad that you kind of liked it because it yeah. was so trashy. Yeah, it I, kind of I, sat too too much in the middle. It was, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't either end of those spectrums. I mean, it was play- I think down. a lot of that came from the fact that it was played so straight as well. Um, it did take itself quite seriously. Yeah. Uh, and that's which, right. And I mean, the, the it humor helped in it work, but... It did. Yeah, yeah. It did help it a little. But the, the humor in it, the sort of dark humor, I guess, came from absurdity of the plot and yes. it, did, it relied too much on that it needed to have some other kind of humour put in there some way, not so that like I say that it didn't become a stupid slapstick film mm. you know, nothing like the you know epic movie or one of those kind of films but something yeah. so it, it kind of it realised how silly it was and then yeah. played on that silliness a bit like a Sam Raimi film or something you know yeah but, you know, like like Steve says, though, it wasn't 
it wasn't that it was a bad film. It's just one of those films that if it's on TV, you could watch half an hour and hour of it, with, and you know. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to be thinking about it like in the next few weeks. I'm not probably not going to think about it now until, like you say, until I see it. So before we go into spoiler alert, do you just want to tell the listeners what we're reviewing next week and what where they can find everything yes. that we do? Okay. So uh, next week's review will be the new Jason Segel and Emily Blunt. Uh, romantic comedy the five-year engagement um and our triple bill will be favorite documentaries and you can find us at www.failedcritics.com uh or go to facebook.com slash failed critic or find us on twitter at at failed critics excellent so we'll be well basically now um if you haven't seen abraham lincoln vampire hunter and don't want it spoiled stop listening now if you don't mind us talking about it in spoilers or you've seen it and want to hear what we've got to say about it in more detail then carry on listening after this bit of music Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.